Welcome to Lunch and Learn with the OU Women's Initiative, Rosh Chodesh Teves. My name is Rivka Foxbrenner. When considering what to speak about for Rosh Chodesh Teves, the two obvious choices are Hanukkah, which is now, and the upcoming 10th of Teves. These are two very different choices because Hanukkah is a time of great joy and light, and Asar B'Teves, the 10th of Teves, is a time of great sadness and darkness. So there really is a range. So what I would like to do is start with neither, speak about something different, and come back to both at the end. What I would like to start with is the Torah reading on Hanukkah, which really is a strange Torah reading. On Hanukkah, we read the Parsha of the Nisim, the princes of Israel, in Parshas Naso. Each Nasi, each prince of Israel, brought an offering at the time of the Hanukkah Samishkan, when the tabernacle was inaugurated in the desert. This, of course, is the connection to Hanukkah, a time when the Beis HaMikdash, the temple, was re-inaugurated after it had been defiled by the Greeks. The Torah goes through every single offering that the princes brought, item by item, amount by amount, 12 full times, even though each offering was exactly the same. Now we know that there is no such thing as an extra word in the Torah, not an extra letter. Naso, which is the longest parsha in the Torah, largely because of this, has 12 identical offerings in all its detail and it's all its specifics, every amount gone through 12 times. It seems logical that after the first Nasi, after the first prince brought his offering, the Torah would have said, the following Nisim, the following princes, and if you want to give them the honor of being listed, then list them by name and go through the 11 remaining princes and say they each brought the exact same offering. Why not just list them once, say everyone brought the same one, and move on? The Ramban Nachmanides answers a foundational answer that doesn't just answer this question, but for me, changes my entire view at the way that I look at my service of Hashem. And he says the following, Because to each one of the princes, It arose in his thought, he thought, to bring an inaugural offer to the Mizbeach, to the altar. And each one thought that it should be in exactly this amount. Meaning each one with all the materials and the animals and the med precious metals, everything that they brought, they each thought of the exact amount to bring. But Nachshon, the prince of Judah, the prince of Yehuda thought of his own particular reason to bring this specific thing and this specific amount. And besides him, each and every prince, each and every nasi, thought of his own reason to bring the exact same offering. And the Midrash actually goes through the thought process of each and every prince 
in terms of why he thought to bring that amount of gold and the, uh, that amount of precious skins. In terms of the materials that he decided to bring and exactly how much. And that's why the text chose to make them exactly the same. To specify, to detail each and every offering itself. As if it had never enumerated the offering of the other. And at the end, it describes them all together. Lirmos to tell us, that each of them thought about it at the exact same moment. No one thought of it first and the other copied it or thought of it later. Meaning they, they all thought of it at the same time. And they all brought it at the exact same time. No one brought it before the other. And therefore, the text lists them all the same. If Nachshon's carbon had been brought, had been detailed, and then everyone else's carbon, everyone else's offering, it said about them, and he brought the same thing as Nachshon, then Nachshon's offering would have been the gold standard, and everyone else copied him. But each of them themselves thought of the offering for his own reasons. And even though they all came out exactly the same on the outside, the Torah, Hashem, considered them all equal and precious and therefore listed them each individually in all their detail. Now, this has a lesson to us from each side. The obvious one is from Hashem's perspective. Hashem looks, how Hashem looks at us. To Hashem, they were all equally and separately precious, enough to list them in the Torah for all eternity. To an onlooker, they were the same, but Hashem doesn't look at us in terms of what we produce. It's not about that. For the Nisim, for what the Nisim brought, for their dedication to the Mishkan and to Hashem, it was about their own specific connection to the mitzvah and to Hashem. They each had their own individual meaning, and that's how Hashem saw it. It wasn't about what they produced and that what they produced was the same. It was about their intention. Their intentions were different. Their intentions were unique, and therefore they deserve to be listened by themselves. And what about the Nisim themselves from their perspective? This is real greatness. They were all the same on the outside. Wouldn't that hurt? All the money and all the preparation were just the same as everyone else. On one of the most important days of all of Jewish history, they thought they were making a unique contribution. But no, it didn't matter. Not only that, Rav David Pavarsky, the great Rosh Hashiva of Panovich, used to speak about this idea every year on Parshas Naso in Yeshiva. And he used to say, it wasn't just that they saw and they were okay with it. They didn't even notice. They brought this offering to Hashem and it was about their offering. 
And the fact that 11 other people had done the exact same thing didn't make a difference. Think about how amazing this is. From the most mundane things in life to the most lofty. If I put in effort and time and money and thought into something, and it turns out exactly the same as someone else, from the cliche wearing of a dress to someone's wedding, and this time you're a bridesmaid, like it's a big deal, to something more elevated, like writing a book or a work of art, to something more personal, like a birthday present or a special gift, to put so much effort into something, to put sacrifice into something, and then for it not to be unique, for it to be the same thing, that could be a really terrible feeling because someone else did the exact same thing. And therefore, it feels worthless. I put this in so it should be unique and it's not unique. But that is only if you're looking at the physical, at the result, at the outside. The gift of the Nisim wasn't about anyone else. It was not about everyone seeing how much they gave or how brilliant their calculations were. It was about their unique offering to Hashem. And that expression of love and of connection was real and unique. And the fact that someone else happened to have done the same thing on the outside was irrelevant to them. Now, as I referenced earlier, this really is counterintuitive. And the question really is why? Why is it that we find it so difficult to do something the same as somebody else, especially when it comes to something meaningful? Rav Dessler asks an obvious question in his life's work, Mechtav Me'eliyahu, on Parshas Toldos. The Torah tells us that when Yitzchak and Rivka were davening for a child, Hashem listened to Yitzchak's prayers, seemingly over Rivka's. There are many explanations given for this. Rashi says it's because Yitzchak was a tzaddik ben tzaddik, a righteous person, the son of a righteous person. And Rivka was a tzaddikas bas rasha. She was a righteous person, but she was the daughter of a rasha. And therefore, Yitzchak was more worthy of being answered than she was. Now, this really requires explanation. We are told many places in Chazal of the special status of Baal Tshuva, who overcomes so many obstacles to live a life of dedication to Hashem. Rivka left her home at an early age to begin building the Jewish people. What could be more praiseworthy than that? And Rav Dessler explains that while Baal Tshuva had their own struggles to overcome, People who are born into a life of Torah observance have their own as well. We all have a desire to be independent and to do our own thing. That is how Hashem created us. We all want to make our mark. Hashem created us unique to do something unique in the world. We feel that intuitively and we want to make a difference. The problem is that sometimes we define that difference in the external or physical terms. Someone who was raised keeping mitzvos needs to take the same thing that their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers have done for millennia and make it their own and make it personal. And that is hard. Now, let me be clear. This is the same Rivka that is mentioned many times about her in the Chomish, that she was Bas Besuel, that she was the daughter of this wicked person. And Rashi speaks about the fact that this is mentioned so many times as a praise that Hashem is pointing out that this great woman came from such a wicked person and she made herself 
in to the incredible person that she became. So Rashi does not belittle her struggle, nor does he ignore the fact that this is part of what makes her great. The reason it's mentioned so many times is as a praise and not chas as a drawback. But each Yitzchak and Rivka had their own path to greatness and each path had its challenges. Rivka did have to overcome coming from, I guess you would say, poor lineage, from coming from a house of wickedness and finding, leaving that and finding the true path and making a new life for herself. But Yitzchak had his own challenge. And this path of service of Hashem is an achievement in and of itself. And for no one in history would this have been more of a challenge than Yitzchak Avinu. No one in history had more of an excuse to have rabbi son syndrome than Yitzchak. Why? He looked identical to his father was the Gadol Hador. His father had originated a new way of looking at life and of spirituality and was fantastically successful at spreading his new ideas. Avraham's very essence was of being different. He is called Avraham Ha'ivri, which means that everyone stood on one side and he stood on the other. It would have been incredibly natural for Yitzchak to say, where do I leave my mark? How can I make a difference in the world? And purposely leave his father's ways behind and try and pave a new path that was different than his father's. But he didn't. He kept the same commandments and lived by the same Torah. He chose to dig deep and make these very same things his own and different and meaningful on the inside. He did the same actions, but with his own intentions and connections. And that was his everlasting contribution to the Jewish people. This is no real, this is no less real, I'm sorry. This is no less real and precious than doing something different. And we can all do this in our own lives. There are times to change things and to blaze your own path, but there are times not to. There are times not to do anything new or different, but to do what you are already doing and what others have done before you and do it differently and make it meaningful. This is hard for us because when we look at the outside, it seems like we haven't done anything unique or special and everyone wants to be unique or special and you are. It's not true that it's not unique and special. You can make great contributions to the world in ways that other people can't see from the outside without starting an organization, without paving a new and revolutionary path, because everyone is different and you are a totally different person than anyone else. And everything that you do, every mitzvah is different because you are the one who's doing it. So let's go back to the Nisim for a second, and then we'll get a little more practical. We each have an opportunity to make each and every mitzvah our own, not by doing something different. The same halachos that everyone is following with the same details, but doing it as us. No one keeps Shabbos like you. With all the minutia of Hilcho Shabbos, with all 39 malachos, 
No one keeps it like you. No one refrains from forbidden speech in the same way, with the same struggle and the same intention that you do. And definitely no one keeps the laws of modesty with the same connection that you do. Sometimes we may feel that religion makes us similar. It makes us the same because we're all following the same rules. And it is true, we do a lot of the same things on the outside. But the panemius, the innerness, is different. And that's where it is really at. That's what really makes you unique. Each offering that the Nisim gave was listed by itself because it really was different. On the outside, it might have been the same amount of copper and the same amount of tachash skin. But that outside was a representation of something totally different and totally unique on the inside. And being as that is the way that Hashem looks at us and the way we really need to look at ourselves, that is the way it was listed in the Torah. Because the offering of Nachshon was totally different than the offering of any other prince. This concept answers a question that I have always had. In the Torah, we are counted, and not just once. And not only are we counted, but it's done in detail, and it's done extensively. And Chazal tell us that the reason that Hashem counts us is because of his great love for us, and that's why he counts us one by one. But halachically, in Jewish law, we are forbidden from counting the Jewish people. The Gemara in Yuma tells us that it is halachically prohibited. And we know from Navi, from the prophets in the book of Samuel, that David HaMelech, King David, caused a plague that killed 70,000 people because he counted the Jewish people. Now that's hard to understand, but for a separate time. But the obvious question is, how could something that could be so good when Hashem does it, and a sign of his love for us, be so bad when we do it ourselves. So true story um, about, I'm in graduate school now, and at the beginning of the last semester, I was, assi- I was assigned um, a book written by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs um, on leadership. The course was on leadership, and I was assigned a book on leadership. And maybe a few hours after I started reading the book, I saw on some kind of update um, that Rabbi Sachs was sick and that he, um, and you know, his name for Tehillim, to, um, to say Tehillim um, for his recovery. And I read this book throughout that time that everyone was davening for his recovery. And just maybe a day or two, after he was Nifter, after he passed away, I saw this, um, this passage in this book that um, answers this question. Now, this shear, this, um, this class, I had actually prepared weeks or maybe even a month before. Um, I hadn't recorded it yet, but I had kind of looked up some sources and decided what I wanted to say. And um, there was an answer, there is an answer offered by the Kliyakar to this question. Now, Rabbi Sachs, really, he actually doesn't quote the Kliyakar, but the answer he gives is the same as the Kliyakar. But I was so touched by finding this answer, and he puts it 
as Rabbi Sachs does in the most beautifully eloquent and articulate terms, that I would like to read you his answer to this question. So again, the question is, how could it be that when Hashem counts us, it is such a positive thing, an act of love and um, something that we treasure, but we ourselves are prohibited from counting Jewish people. So Rabbi Sachs says the following. The short answer is this. In any census, count or roll call, there is a tendency to focus on the total, the crowd, the multitude, the mass. Here is a nation of 60 million people, or a company with 100,000 employees, or a sports crowd of 60,000 fans. Any total tends to value the group or nation as a whole. The larger the total, the stronger is the army, the more popular the team, and the more successful the company. Counting devalues the individual and tends to make him or her replaceable. If one soldier dies in battle, another will take his place. If one person leaves the organization, someone else can be hired to do his or her job. And then he adds something that the Kliakar does not say. There is a wonderful blessing mentioned in the Talmud to be said on seeing 600,000 Israelites gathered in one place. It is, blessed are you Hashem who discerns secrets. The Talmud explains that every person is different. We have different attributes. We all think our own thoughts. Only God can enter the minds of each of us and know what we are thinking. And this is what the blessing refers to. In other words, even in an enormous crowd where to human eyes faces blur into a mass, God still relates to us as individuals. Hashem counts us like no human can count us because he always sees the inside. He always sees the uniqueness. We are not allowed to count because when we assign a number, it takes away from the individuality of each person. Baruch Hashem, at this point, some of my children are old enough that I'm not really worried about losing them when I go places. But there was a time when I only had little children and I would spend the entire day, especially when we went somewhere, counting to seven. Now, I try not to violate the prohibition of counting people. So instead, I would count their noses or count their left hands or count something like that. But I basically spent the entire day counting to seven because I was petrified of chas losing a child. And then one day, it dawned on me that instead of counting to seven, what I should do to remind myself of the fact that I am not a mother of seven as a herd, but I am a mother of seven individual, unique, wonderful, delicious children, is go through their names in my head. And now that's what I do. Instead of counting their hats or their shoes or whatever it is that I counted, I say their names. And by saying their names, I remind myself that again, I'm not a number of seven. I am so-and-so's mother and so-and-so's mother and so-and-so's mother, etc. When Hashem counts us, He sees us as an individual. Hashem is not susceptible like we are 
of being distracted by the external, of devaluing the individual. Hashem doesn't have to be careful from doing that. And therefore, when he counts us, it's only an act of love, right? When I count my children, it's an act of love. I want to make sure that they're there. They're precious to me. But he is not susceptible. Hashem is not susceptible to focusing on the external. But people are. And therefore, the same, very same act that from Hashem is an act of love, for us is forbidden. Because we must be wary of that. We must be wary of focusing on the outside, of making people just into one more person, of focusing on the herd rather than the individual. And this really, the way Hashem looks at us, is the way we need to look at ourselves and other people. Hashem does not do anything extra. That is the definition of perfection. You are not Hashem's one mistake, and neither is anyone else. There is something that is different and unique about you that no one else in the world has. And we can only see that if we remember that this uniqueness is inside and not outside. Because on the outside, there will always be somebody who is prettier or funnier or smarter or a better dresser or has more money or has a nicer house or lahavdil, Davin's better, or I shouldn't say better, but for more time or does more chesed. If that is what your self-esteem is based on, then you are in trouble. But in reality, what your self-esteem should be based on is your uniqueness, that there is no one in the world like you. No one keeps Shabbos like you and no one davens like you. And no one kisses their nieces and nephews before they go to sleep like you do. No one. Because you do it like you. It's not that you do it better. And it's not that you do it not as well. You do it like you. And that is unique. And that is the difference between looking on the inside and looking on the outside. On the outside, we may look the same. On the outside, we may be able to value better, worse, more or less. On the inside, we are just unique, and there can be absolutely no confusion. It's not possible. Now let's get to Hanukkah, and even the sadness that follows on the 10th of Tevis. There are four main exiles described in the books of Jewish philosophy. One clearly stands out as different from the rest. And this is Greece, which is symbolized by darkness, but also by wisdom and beauty. And the obvious question is, darkness seems to be the opposite of wisdom and beauty. Wisdom and knowledge bring light. We are the people of the book, the most literate people in all of human history. We have a commandment for all men to learn at all times. What on earth could possibly be wrong with wisdom? And the Maharal explains something really foundational about the way that we look at wisdom and knowledge. He says that there is an inner layer of godliness that exists in the world. The world is created in two layers. There is reality, which is godliness, and which is the revelation of Hashem in the world and spirituality. But with the creation of the physical world that we use as a medium, that we use to be able to connect to Hashem, 
That layer of godliness was covered with a veil that we see or define as physicality or nature. Like any veil or covering, the true purpose of the covering is to reveal what's underneath and to make it more beautiful. But like any veil or covering, one can ignore what is beneath and focus only on the veil itself. And that is the case with nature and physicality in this world. Nature, physicality, was created in order for us to look through it, to use it to discover its creator, and use the medium of physicality to come close to Hashem and to serve him. But we do have the ability to focus on the veil for the veil itself, to focus on it and to live only for the physical and to worship it. The rest of the kingdoms, the rest of the exiles into which Bnei Israel found themselves in exile were immersed in vices to which we have no connection. Greece was different because Greece took wisdom and understanding of the physical, which we hold dear as a medium, and focused on it as an end in and of itself. Now, why is this called darkness? This is called darkness because the very covering that has the potential to be a source of light, when it reveals what is beneath, can be a source of darkness when it is focused on in and of itself. And therefore, instead of being, instead of revealing what's underneath, instead of being transparent, becomes opaque. It covers and obfuscates exactly what it is meant to reveal. This is the darkness that is Greece. It is the worship of physicality as an end in and of itself. Beauty has its own goal. It is the study of science as an explanation for a godless creation, God forbid, instead of a revelation of God's great wisdom. When used properly, the wisdom and beauty of Greece can be a partner and support of Torah. When used improperly, it is contrary to Torah and serves to hide and obscure it. Hanukkah is the time when we celebrate our victory over the Greeks and the Jews who wanted to become like them. A culture that is all about the value and appreciation of the physical leads to deep respect of humanity, but not of each individual person. We believe each person is an irreplaceable individual. A person can often reveal who they are on the outside, but that's only if what we are looking for is what it reveals about them on the inside. If we only look at the outside for the sake of the outside, we are absolutely missing who they really are. The light of Hanukkah is the revelation of the reality of what is within. The darkness of Teves that comes later, that is represented by the 10th of Teves and actually the two days before as well, that comes when we get distracted by the coverings that become a means and not an end. That should be a means, but not an end. So let's go back to today's Torah reading and the Nisim. There is a deeper connection of their message to Hanukkah than the inauguration of the Mishkan and the Beis HaMikdash. 
They, the Nisim, are the ultimate example of appreciation of what is within. They served Hashem to their utmost as a representation of who they were on the inside, so deep and so intricate and so totally and completely different than anyone else in the world, even if it seemed similar or in this case, exactly the same as those around them. They spent a long time getting dressed for the wedding. And when they got there, it didn't matter to them at all that someone else was wearing the same dress and the same earrings and the same shoes. Because that's so silly, because that's the outside. And I am still me, no matter what I'm wearing even if someone else is wearing the same thing. Now, obviously what the Nisim were doing was a mitzvah and therefore it is more meaningful than a dress. The point is that the external does not change who they are inside or even their intention and the meaning behind getting dressed for and preparing for an important and even monumental occasion. Let ourselves see the same way as let us see ourselves in the same way that the Nassim saw themselves. We all have a unique contribution to make to the world. It's not that they were unique because they were princes of Israel. We are all unique. That's why we're here. And there are times that we have to be different and stand out and protest injustice. But there are times when we don't. Many times we don't, and that is not where our individuality lies. Our actions don't have to be different, and oftentimes they shouldn't be, because our uniqueness lies in who we are and how we do things. Every act that we do is unique because we are. Let us connect that uniqueness in ourselves and in others. Just like what we do is totally different, and we are an infinite well of spirituality and of meeting and of humanity, so is everyone else. Everyone is different. And let us connect to ourselves and each other in that way, in order that we can connect to the one who made us that way. On this Yantif of Hanukkah, let us rejoice in the miracle of being Hashem's unique creations.